I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. And it wasn't until I was, after several attempts on my life, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to survive this guy. Like, I don't think I'm going to live. I need to try and try and get out. And I ended up getting out uh, and moving six hours away to go to school. Um, Kind of like dusting my hands of it and being like, that was a, was a rough time. Like, let's just, you know, file that away as we're never going to think about this again. Um, And then he showed up in the town about a year and a half later and he found me and then it ended up going, I had to go to the police at that point. In today's episode of Recovery Chatter, we are thrilled to welcome an extraordinary guest, Alexandra Ford, the founder of The Laughing Survivor. Alexandra's journey is nothing short of remarkable, a survivor of human trafficking, mental and physical abuse, and sexual assault. She has transformed her pain into purpose, becoming a beacon of hope and a voice for the voiceless. Her advocacy, education and consulting work in the community on human trafficking are changing lives. And if you are moved by her inspiring TEDx talk, you are in for a treat. Today, Alexandra gives us a personal blueprint on recognizing the signs of human trafficking and protecting yourself and your loved ones from becoming victims. In this episode, you cannot afford to miss. Tune into Recovery Chatter for a story of resilience, courage, and empowerment. You're listening to Recovery Chatter Podcast Show, episode number seven. Alexandra, this is my uh, partner, John. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. We find your story really inspiring. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, I absolutely love the Rosie the Riveter. Uh, what is that, a little lunchbox? Like one of those little uh, metal lunchbox? Yeah, yeah I, it is. I love it. And you have that as your... Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's awesome. That really... That was a costume many years ago. Um, listening to some of the podcasts, just to get a real clear understanding about who you are and your background, I really am so impressed with how much you advocate for, of course, 
um, people that were victims of human trafficking, but also just empowering women. And so when I saw that in the background, I was like, wow, this girl's going to kick ass. You know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing your story. Um, you know, the reason why, how I like came upon uh, like finding you, I was just just really just strolling through uh, YouTube. And, you know, I'm always looking for people that are impacting the world and really out there. Uh, telling their story, where they were, where they're at now. And a part of our show at uh, Recovery Chatter is about legacy, what your legacy looks like. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so welcome to Recovery Chatter show. Uh, we are on with Alexandra Ford. She is a uh, advocate, a educator and consultant for people that were victims of human trafficking. And so Alexandra, thank you again for coming on. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. So to kick things off, um, tell us a little bit about you, uh, you know, for our listeners, just a little background, uh, you know, your personal life right now, what's going on? I always like get stumped at that question. I feel like it should be the easiest question to answer. And then my brain freezes and I'm like, I do nothing but sit at my desk. No, I don't. I'm You're not the only I'm one. Not the it only is. one. I, I've tried putting my bio together for somebody else's podcast and I'm going to be going on and I'm like, what do I write? So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I find, I find as soon as someone asks me uh, for the TEDx I just did, we had yeah. to meet with the MC and he wanted to know some interesting facts just to introduce people. And I froze. I'm like, there's nothing interesting about me. And he's like, okay, oh, that I... is not true. And started asking questions and then we found some, but it, it yeah, writing bios and, and stuff, I freeze up, but I can give an overview. So I um, live in Canada. I'm not sure where you guys are based out of. Yeah. Uh, you know what? That I apologize. I'm from Jersey. And okay. Probably get that after a while once you hear me really talking. I got Frank Sinatra in the background here, so my favorite. Yeah, yeah. John, why don't you tell her where? Yeah, you're... so I'm down here, and uh, Danny and I met um, a long time, uh, six, seven years ago, but here in Florida. So I'm still here. I'm, I'm in I'm in Clearwater, the Tampa Bay area. Oh, nice. Sounds warm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, Canadian. Born and raised. I grew up on the east side, so in Ontario. Um, and then I actually lived in Wyoming for several years. And then now I live on the West Coast in British Columbia. Um, quick level overview. When I was in Ontario, I was, you know, I always say like the most, most boring and normal suburban family. Like, you know, parents together, older brother, Older brother was an athlete. I was, you know, trying to be like my brother, but I'm not athletic. So that didn't work out super well. Mm -hmm. um, and I experienced some trauma at a pretty young age, uh, which led me down a pretty negative path where I ended up dating the town drug dealer um, and being trafficked. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually find out I was trafficked for, oh, another 10 years or so. Um and in that 10 years, you know, from the time I escaped him, he found me, we ended up in court case, that whole situation took about four years. Um, and then in that 10 years, I 
also went back to school. Like I, I went to post-secondary education. So I collected a couple degrees. I got a bachelor's in criminology, um, postgraduate in victimology and honors diploma in community and justice service and a master's in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up moving to Wyoming. I got married and I moved to Wyoming and that's where I met Terry Markham. And it was actually in a conversation with her where she was doing some anti-trafficking work. And because of a visa situation, me being Canadian, I couldn't work in the States until things were more ironed out. Mm-hmm. But not being one to sit around and do nothing, I had heard she was doing this anti-trafficking work. And I was like, okay, cool. I know nothing about human trafficking. Um, but I do know something about domestic violence because that's what I had labeled the situation I had escaped from as. Mm-hmm. And is there some way I could help? And in that first conversation with her, For some reason, I absolutely word vomited and trauma dumped my entire story on her Um, in a way in detail that I've never, I'd never told another soul. I hadn't even told the police these details because I had thought they were either minor or maybe my head had made them up or who would want to know because it was my fault anyway. Um, And when I told her that it was her who turned to me and said, you know, what you're describing to me sounds like human trafficking. Um, And this is, of course, after I've gone to court against, you know, the man who trafficked me, he was my abuser, I called him at that point. Um, I have a degree in criminology, I've worked in shelters, I've worked with police, I've worked with adults with kids, like I've been in this field, I had no idea I was trafficked. So that really um, started the next stage of my life, I guess, like where Terry and I co-founded Uprising, which is a anti-human trafficking nonprofit based out of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And then when my family and I moved back to Canada, um, A, I knew I didn't want to start another nonprofit because, oh my God, um, that's insane. It's a lot of work. Uh, And I was now, you know, a one woman show, Terry still in Wyoming. Um, And so I started The Laughing Survivor. I still wanted to work in the anti-trafficking field. And I have a unique way of sort of telling my story or talking about really dark subjects while trying to bring light to them in ways that make them a little bit more digestible. So people actually want to continue the conversation and not want to like you know, drown their sorrows after they listen to me speak. That's not the goal. So that's where I am at now. I have two small children. Um, My son is four and a half. My daughter's almost three. Mm. And uh, yeah, I I just live and work and breathe anti-trafficking. That's awesome. I'm a delight at dinner parties, I swear. It's amazing that um, one of the things that really caught my eye also was the laughing, your brand, your personal brand, the laughing survivor. And I, being a former police officer and dealing with a lot of traumatic events, uh, I had a couple of pretty nasty ones. And I know for myself, like, as horrible as it sounds, I had to like kind of laugh in order for me to deal with it. You know, a lot yeah. of, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, it, it kind of, I, I don't know if that's where, you got your personal brand from is having that same thought process or not. But I'm curious about how you came about with the name, the laughing survivor. Similar to that. So one of the um, earlier jobs I had uh, kind of like midway through my schooling and all of that, I worked for 
um, what in Ontario is called the Victim Witness Assistance Program. And it's a government program. It runs out of the courthouse. And it, they're these people, their job is to literally like hold the hand uh, physically or emotionally of someone who is a victim or witness in more serious cases. So sexual assault cases, murder trials, um, that sort of thing to, with the, the understanding that the layman, the regular civilian doesn't understand the court process and, and it can be very overwhelming. So here's your sort of support person. I had had um, VWAP people, victim witness assistance people, when I went through the court cases I did as a victim um, and they had made the diff made all the difference. So when I got a chance to work there, it was like dream come true. I, this is everything I've ever wanted to do. Now, after several you know, if it was weeks or months, um, I was so disillusioned um, at working there because I thought I was doing this super important work. And I had, you know, my degree under one arm and my very serious social justice face on, under the other. And I kept going into work and the people I was working with, women, they're all women, they, they just kept laughing. And like, not in a mean way, but I just kept, I kept being like, you guys aren't taking this seriously. Do you not know what it's like to be a victim on the other side of this? Like I've been through it twice. You need to take it more seriously. And I remember going home and being so frustrated. And then one day going in, I was like, I'm going to quit. Like, I can't do this. They're so like, they're wrong. They're disillusioned, whatever. And I came in that day and they were all laughing. They like, when I got in, they're all in one office laughing and not just laughing, like tears, you know, clapping like a seal, no noise coming out, just laughing. Right. And I was, um, I mean, I was pissed, but I was also curious. I was like, okay, hold on. I want to know, yeah. but then I, then, then I'm going to give you what for. So I asked what had happened and we had had one of our, um, return clients come through. It's usually domestic violence weeks or months, you know, the, the case fizzles out because, because oftentimes the victim doesn't want to press charges. They go back to their abuser. It all happens again in a cycle. Sure. They come through and, you know, it is heartbreaking and frustrating to see that someone can't extricate themselves from that situation. They don't have the support. They don't feel the worth, whatever it is. So that part wasn't funny. No. But this repeat client had come in and this time she had defended herself against her boyfriend for the first time. And she had done it with the thing she could grab. That was just, she reached around and, and grabbed something. And it happened to be one of like a cheese grater. Mm -hmm. And she had cheese grated his face oh. to make him stop attacking her. Yeah. Yeah. We were all just in tears laughing and it's not funny, obviously that someone has to defend themselves physically no, no, against domestic yeah. violence or anything, but just yeah. this image of this woman finally standing up yeah. for herself in a way, like feeling that empowerment, whatever it was that changed her reaction. And the first thing she grabs is a cheese grater and just imagining this guy, you know, in lockup overnight with his face yeah. cheese grated. Yeah. We, we were just laughing. And I remember when I finally could catch my breath and I asked them like, why am I laughing at this? It makes me feel like I'm not good at my job. Like I don't care as much. And they were like gallows humor. Why do you think when you're at a funeral, if someone starts giggling, yes. it all catches and then suddenly people are laughing, mm -hmm. right? It's it's a natural way to release tension and to connect and to ground yourself and to 
to, you know, when you work in darkness as often, you know, law enforcement, so much of what you do is in darkness. Then when there's that spark of light, you just have to like stare at it until you're laughing. You have to find funny in things that are not funny, um, which doesn't always translate well to, you know, dinner parties and, and yes. with people who don't live and work in yeah. the darkness of humanity. But it is that that really sparked um, the laughing survivor. And when I was going through my healing, I kept getting told, I kept getting the message that like healing as a victim of trafficking and, and childhood sexual assault and all these things looked like yoga and it looked like pastel colors and it looked like hushed tones and tilted heads and people asking if I was okay. And I was like, I want to punch things and drink whiskey. Like yeah. that's how I want to heal. So where's the space for that? And like, I want to laugh at the ridiculousness of some of what I went through and I want to, you know, yell into the void. And I want, I don't, I don't pastel color and yoga so well. So that's sort of, it just, my own brand of surviving. Found it in laughter. No, that's, that's awesome. I, um, what, did you have this image of like cheddar cheese or his face or was it provolone <laughs> or anything? I was, I just had to throw that out there. I have, I have no filter. So just so you know, I, I do the same that's thing. Totally that's totally fine. <laughs> I was like, is it, did he have little flat like, like what part face? was it? You know, was it the little like the little holes or was it like the big slice? You know, but good I, for her. I, good for her. I hope I hope that the judge and everybody that dealt with that, that matter hope it was a good outcome for her. I really mm, did. Me too. So, yeah, but, Alexandra, um, yeah. I, I um I can personally relate. So I you know, I mean, traumatic. Decisions of my own part led me to, you know, the path of sobriety, recovery, and healing. And I remember just having this moment, uh, just as a young man, um, and like, you know, unsure of like my outcome of what life's gonna be, what life's gonna hold for me, and all these doubts and fears. And it was a bunch of guys that were sober. And I was invited to this event, and it was like a UFC, like what, like a really masculine manly. They had steaks and burgers, and they were watching a UFC fight. And I remember I walked in like thinking that it was just going to be a bunch of, I don't know, like, I don't know, just quiet meat guys that are, you know, they don't drink. They're not going to be fun. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. And when I walked in the door, like, it sounded like the loudest bar, like, with, with these guys were belly laughing and, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, stealing each other's frog. And just, it was just like that. And I, like, that was so relieving to me that it was, like, part of the healing process for me, too, that I'm like, you know, like, all right, like, we're on the other side of this now. And, like, we're... We can look back and like these guys were inviting new young guys that were sober to come out and hang out and, you know, uh, socialize. And so I can really acknowledge that because I, I, I and, and I can um, understand that 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 moment that you had. And I love that that your, um, you know, your calling card there, uh, uh, you know, with the laughing because it is it's healing. And, you know, we run a, I run a drug and alcohol treatment center. And when you have somebody come in, they're, you know, really quiet and reserved and sometimes like 
a lot of trauma themselves. And then after a couple of days, like, or even a couple of weeks and you start to see a smile, you just know that like something's happening. So there's so yeah. much positivity with that. There's so much, um, healing and laughter. And I think when you've been through, I say major trauma, but that is however you categorize major trauma within your, your own life and your own Richter scale. Um, but there's this expectation that like, you are now serious and, and, you know, just a little forlorn maybe and all of that. And I've always said, you know, I don't love being congratulated for how strong I am because it feels like I'm being congratulated for how well I take a hit. And I'm like, I'm done with, I don't want to take any more hits. Congratulate me for the fact that I still find joy at the night sky when I see stars. Congratulate me that I will go out and dance in the rain with my kids and get soaked and giggle and laugh. Like the fact that I can find laughter in silly things and I can still be silly, that I think says a lot more about my character and my willingness to heal and and move beyond the trauma and the 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 difficulties because they don't color my everyday anymore. I can I can laugh now and that's huge. I love it. I I have a, a son and a daughter. John has two girls. So I, I will definitely admit that I treat my daughter a little different than I do my son as far as being a little overprotective. One of the things I told my daughter that's very typical in the in the technology age, I've always tell her when you have a boyfriend or and I've been telling her this I think since she was like 3. Zuzi, I always told her, um, make sure that you respect yourself. This is your, you know, your sanctuary or whatever, the temple, um, your body. And I always tell her, so whatever you do, do not go and send any provocative or any suggestive text messages to any guys, no matter how many times he says, I promise I'm never going to show anybody. I tell her 1,000 times a million, he's going to show his friends. Do you have like conversations with young girls about things like that? Because it could be something so subtle as something like that, where that, like just um, breaking down a woman's, a young woman's confidence. Do you have conversations about things like that? Because I, I do all the time about with, with her. And, you know, just being a father, like I said, I'll admit I'm overprotective with her. She uh, has me wrapped around her finger for sure. So you mentioned earlier you have no filter. So I'm going to take that and um, run with it. Good. And I'll turn that question into a question back to you. Do you have these same conversations with your son about not asking for those photos, about respecting when he does get those photos, about ensuring his buddies, not just him within himself and his own cell phone, but he's having conversations with his friends saying, if you get those photos, that is not to be shared. No, I don't want to see your girlfriend's, you know, sexy photo or something like that. Because you ask me yeah. if I have these conversations with young girls, I have these conversations with young people. Awesome. Um, you because you don't that. prevent... The harm that you're you're talking about, you know, take yeah. hurting hurt a young girl getting hurt and 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 all of that. Yeah. Who's hurting them? Most yeah. often. No, absolutely. Right? And and to answer your question, yes, one hundred percent. I absolutely do. I do tell my son be absolutely respectful. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. And you're right, absolutely. 
Um, it isn't just young girls. It, boys are also victims as well. Mm -hmm. And they also, and could be on both of them could be on the other side as well as being, um, of course, uh, you know, the ones that are yeah, out there. exploitation of either one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it didn't just and, what I was, I don't know, I'm glad that I don't think they even had pictures on the cameras when I was <laughs> in high school. I'm just grateful for that. But technology okay. certainly changes a lot of things. Yeah. I think the conversations that need to happen are a from a young age understanding that while the internet um may be an alternate reality mm -hmm. it is still reality yeah. um so when you send an image out into the internet um it doesn't it doesn't stop being part of your life it's not on the computer and therefore detached from you it is still part of your life it's going to your friends or your school or wherever it can come back to bite you when you want to apply for jobs and, you know, break up with someone or whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. However, I think the conversation, both boys and girls need to understand the risks of sending and receiving um, suggestive photos. Also, if you're under 18, you could be looking at child sex abuse material, right? At either being in possession of it or um creating it so there's always that warning though legal warnings don't always sit so well with kids because they're like well i'm not going to get caught and i'm yeah. invincible and whatever um but i think the conversation needs to spread beyond that from don't do it it's bad um because like as adults with fully developed adult brains we're like we fully understand all the level of consequence sure. that can come from this kids you know under the age of 30 don't really have fully developed adult brains that can understand the full level of consequence. So I would suggest while continue to have those conversations with, with both your son and your daughter. Um, we also want to have the conversations of, but you're probably going to do it anyway, right? Like we can't always just tell kids everything they're not supposed to do and then stop the conversation there. Because the thing is, we know kids will make mistakes. They're human and they're kids. They're destined to make mistakes. And if we don't ever continue the conversation beyond the don't do it to the when you do make a mistake, this is what to do next. This is how I will still love you and show up for you. And that conversation can make the difference between a kid getting who's getting sextorted coming forward or ending their life. Yeah. That's and that's what we're seeing nowadays with boys, especially we're seeing a yeah. huge rise of boys getting sextorted online. And there's so much shame with that. Sure. And all the conversations are how to prevent it, how to talk to them about it, how to, you know, teach them online safety, let them use their phones to what degree, what are the safe apps? How do we do that? Do we tell them we're looking through their phones? All of that. But there's not the conversation happening as much as when they make the mistake because they will, whatever mistake it is, sure. they will make one. This is all the ways I will still show up for you as your parent. Mm. This is all the ways I will still love you. You have, I heard from a podcast I did the other day, you have an invisible stack of, I will love you forever cards, mm -hmm. right? So it's not consequence free. It's not a get out of jail free card, right? Uh, it's true. Yeah. It's an, I will love you forever card. So if you are ever terrified to tell me something, 
you pull out one of these invisible cards and you say, give me this. And you have an, within your family, you can come up with what works for you. You might be like, okay, when you tell me the thing, I will not react, ask questions, say anything for 12 hours or 24 hours. You will have told me and I will take that time to process and let you know I know, but like not go, what the hell did you? Oh my yeah, God, yeah. like, how could you be so stupid? I told you not to, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I will do what I've asked you to do since you were a little kid is take some deep breaths and we'll work on this together. You always have my love. Yeah, I love that. And it's um, it gets back to what you just what you mentioned earlier is you just don't say don't do it. There's that why behind it, because they're going to know want to know why, you know, so you go yeah. down that road and you talk to them about, well, this could happen and that could happen and so on and so forth. So. Yeah, a lot of parents are, um, I know for myself, I have these conversations with my kids and I tell them, and I mean, they, they get annoyed, I could tell, because I go on and on and on. And I just tell them, look, you're going to, I know it's painful to listen to your father talk all day, but you're going to, you're going to appreciate, it, I hope one day. Um, mm -hmm. So you started out actually very early at a very young age with, um, being an advocate for uh, trafficking, human trafficking, and you didn't even know it. And I believe mm -hmm. it was around the age of 11. It, so if you, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, like I said, my brother was an athlete. He was a swimmer and he was awesome at it. Um, and, you know, around that age, you're really moving into that, like, peers are becoming more influential than your family or your parents and you're trying to find your thing. And I was like, well, I'm going to be like my brother. I'm going to be a swimmer. Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> swim, just not, not at any level he was. Um, I jumped around to a bunch of different things, gymnastics and tried to find what my thing was. And it wasn't until my teacher read my class, an article about child labor and exploitation. And in fact, the article wasn't just about um, child labor. It was about a boy who's several years older than me, um, but local into my area. And he had learned about child exploitation and started a nonprofit called Free the Children. And it was all about kids helping kids. Um, and it was the first time that I really learned that like me as a kid, like I can do something, I can be a positive influence on my world. And at that point, I was like a huge bookworm. Like I was a nerd, full on giant glasses, unibrow, you know, <laughs> from one side of my face I to the other. I wish I was. I wish I was. <laughs> um, and like, I think the worst trouble I ever got into was, you know, getting yelled at for keeping my light on too late because I was reading too far into the night. Oh. So then I started working with this advocacy group uh, for the children and I started collecting signatures for a petition to send to our government, asking them to strengthen laws on um, imports being created in child labor producing factories. Um, wow. I think I petitioned my parents to send me undercover to Nic uh, Nicaragua to like infiltrate some of these factories. <laughs> and they were like, uh, no, it's yeah. just fair. Um and I think, I also think, you know, now that I have kids and my kids aren't near that age yet, but seeing that kind of kid, like, I feel like you kind of hang your hat as a parent and you're like, well, I'm done. Like that parented, we're good. Like she's, yeah, we're, we're, we're happy with that. 
Um, and I was doing, I, you know, got straight A's. I was doing really well. And then a couple years later, when I was in my early teens, my best friend's uncle began sexually assaulting me. And that continued through all of my teens. And again, the problem with that, similar to what I told you about trafficking, is I had no concept that I was being assaulted because sexual assault had been described to me as no means no, as a stranger in an alleyway who pinned you down and you fought valiantly for your, you know, survival and your, your freedom. And up until that point, I had always been kind of lauded by parents and friends and friends, parents of friends that I was this, you know, very mature for my age, very intelligent um, young woman. And so when this 30 something good looking, you know, man showed interest in me, I didn't think, oh my God, no bad abuse. I thought, well, I'm older, like I'm mature. So this must be like some sort of clandestine relationship. I knew on some level it wasn't okay because I didn't tell anyone. Um, but I didn't register it as abuse yeah. for all those years. I registered it as exciting, annoying, scary, confusing, all of the things, but I didn't register it as abuse. My body, however, tried to process it and I, I, ended up going down the path of doing drugs yeah yeah so that's it. human trafficking is something i i feel like i was so unaware of and like i have mm -hmm. two young daughters too they're seven and nine and i mean alexandra i, was, I listened to your story some other you know on some other podcasts as well and it's just i mean it's like um it's first of all you're so inspiring but it's it's just so like frightening that um, like you share about yourself, you grew up in like, really, I mean, a boring, you know, middle class, you know, family. And what I, that's my, that was my perception of that. And I remember when we had the Super Bowl, maybe I was in high school down here in Tampa. And, uh, you know, every, and, the, and then there all of a sudden, there's a bunch of awareness that wherever the Super Bowl city is, there's going to be a huge amount of human trafficking. I'm like, in our, in our town, really? And then, you know, like, just so naive to the fact that I'm like, are we going to see like, I have to, I have to look out for like women that are like chained and, you know, like in and out of, mm. you know, buses. And, and it's not like that. There are a lot, and uh, you're not even aware. Like I remember also there was one of our football coaches in high school um, was also a, he was a police officer and he was a resource officer. He was like a college wide receiver. He was in like tremendous shape. And it like years after that, he was, you know, sexually abusing. And I mean, you know, it wasn't exactly trafficking, but sexually abusing, you know, women at the high school that he was working at. And it was just like, it's the people that you completely don't expect. And uh, so I, I like, just as a dad with two young girls, I'm like, I'm like, I'm honestly afraid to have them like, let them, I don't let them sleep over anywhere. I'm not saying that'll last forever, but I just can't imagine a time anywhere close. And um, it, I think the question I'm trying to get to is, you know, in regards to like events, like the Super Bowl, um, like, it's not just those events. It's happening in every town. Like I was supposed to go to Houston for a sporting event. And I hear that's just one of the largest like human trafficking cities. And it's just much more prevalent than I think any of us realize. Oh, a hundred percent. I think the biggest thing that we confuse and myself too, until I, you know, found out I was trafficked is this idea that we think of trafficking as this like 
big thing that happens to those people over there. Yeah. Like yeah. whatever that maybe looks like to you, but yeah. mostly it's confused with human smuggling. When you describe, you know, women chained up in the backs of buses or in, yeah. in, in you know, shipping containers or something like that. Right. Like a white van pulls up and grabs you and the old yeah. van. Yeah. Or we think of the movie Taken, right? Yeah. You know, young and it, like Russian oligarchy or, or massive crime ring or something like that. So we think of it as this sort of Hollywoodized mafia style, big organized thing. Disconnected from exist. us. Yeah. yeah. Disconnected. Right. Exactly. And that does exist as well. Yeah. Percent. Yeah. yeah. But trafficking that is most common and that we don't see is. I kind of think of it in like, I mean, there's so many levels, but I think of it in three levels. So there's that big one, the organized crime, the what we sort of maybe picture. Um, the more mid-level and com like mid-common one is what you're going to see a lot of, especially in, in Vegas or in big cities where who's the trafficker and he runs a stable or several women and they all work for him. Oftentimes they all live in a house together. You know, they work different shifts. There's hierarchies in there. Um, and so that's pimp controlled domestic sex trafficking. Um, and then in my situation, which for me is probably one of the most common, I dare say, I don't have a stat on that, but, um, and least recognized is where it's just your boyfriend being like, Hey, you want to help me make some money? And you're like, all right, yeah, cool. Why not? Right. So it's just, it starts out with, in my situation, it started out with him being like, hey, we're doing more drugs than we're selling. You want to help me make some money? And I thought, well, yeah, if I'm helping you make money, then I'm no longer just the wifey. Like we're business partners, right? Like yeah. this elevates my status. Yeah, so absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm here for this. And all I had to do was distract people at house parties or bars so he could, you know, snatch a few things and we could pawn them. It wasn't, it didn't really seem that, big of a deal. Yeah. It's fairly ornamental. My my job was fairly ornamental. I didn't really have to do much. Um fortunately we were both doing meth, which meant that our relationship, you know, went from zero to a hundred in about oh, forty yeah. hours. Like, seconds. Yeah, it's it's super quick. And he was extremely violent. And it really only took that co-conspirator criminal act, that first one. For when he's like, hey, let's up the ante. What if you do this? And I was like, mm, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. And he was like, but you're gonna, wow. right? And it progressed to, we're partying at a strip club as, you know, we often did. And all of a sudden I feel my feet leave the floor and I'm up on stage at the strip club. I'm being told, don't get down until you've made me some money. Wow. That was your boyfriend? Yeah, Pardon me? That was your boyfriend? That, that was my boyfriend. <laughs> Go ahead. I apologize. Continue. He, in in hindsight, like now that I know, because I had thought I had the thing with my friend friend's uncle under control until the police got mixed up in that, and they were like, "Um, that's abuse. You've been abused for the last like five years." And I was like, "Wait, what?" So I wasn't in control of that. So now I have this like trauma hole in me that just needs to be filled by getting control and, and feeling power. So he would 
he played on that with this like kind of making you're gonna back down from that really you're you're too much of a pussy to do that and i'd be yeah, like no yeah, yeah. i'm gonna do it and then be like what did i just agree to yeah. my mouth would work faster than any, any part of my brain um and it just it it spiraled so far out of control to the point where i couldn't say no anymore mm-hmm. i felt so much shame for what i had and i ha- though i hadn't said yes i had said yes i didn't understand coercive control or trauma bonding so i was like well i agreed to the first thing so that means that everything else is my fault cuz i i walked onto this path sure. um and it wasn't until i was after several attempts on my life, I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna survive this guy. Like, I don't think I'm gonna live. I need to try and try and get out. And I ended up getting out uh, and moving six hours away to go to school. Um, Kind of like dusting my hands of it and being like, that was a was a rough time. Like, let's just, you know, file that away as we're never going to think about this again. Yeah. Um, and then he showed up in the town about an, a year and a half later and he found me and then it ended up going, I had to go to the police at that point yeah. and we went through the court system and everything. From when you met wow. him to that point, how long of a door, like, what was that? How many years or how long that, how long was it that you were in, like trapped in that cycle? We started dating, or what do they call it these days? A situationship. That's <laughs> that's true. That's a first for me. I never heard that, but all right. Situationship. It was like a relationship, I guess. Yeah. But well, was steady. it going steady? Never going steady. <laughs> yeah, it's some romance. Thing. That makes it sound romantic. It's not romantic. No, not at all. He wooed me by coming into the tanning salon that I worked at and leaving. Take we we gave every client a Werther's original like while they were tanning and he would like take the candy and leave a little package of meth for me in oh. the room so it was just you know sweet sweet kind gestures yeah. um so that was classic love story, yeah. Yeah. a classic love story we wrote each other love notes but by love notes I mean we sent each other you know half naked photos with our very sketchy flip phones that barely took a decent photo like 2007 millennial yeah. romance for the ages um so January 2007, we started seeing each other, started trying to get away from him in April 2007, really in earnestly. I got into a car accident, which caused me to have enough clarity to be like, uh, I don't think I'm going to, I don't know how this is going to go down. And he saw me kind of pull back on doing drugs. And then he fed me like a meth jam sandwich and I don't know, like I OD'd and I was like, oh, okay, that's a problem. I moved away to Ottawa uh, in, I believe, July 2007, maybe August 2007. He found me in March 2009 on St. Patrick's Day. Um, Then we went through the whole court process. Um, He was held on remand due to his lengthy criminal history. Uh, when he was found not guilty on, on most of the charges, they were hoping if they could get him guilty on some of the more severe charges, they could dangerous, like DO him in Canada, it's dangerous offender or long-term offender. Um, so it's, it's sort of a lock up and throw away the key. You get to apply for parole, but there's no guarantee. Yeah. Um, and then he got out of jail. We didn't get the out. He got out of jail in November 
end of October or November 2011, found me again. Um, took him 10 days or something that time. And then they were in the process. The police told me they were in the process of looking for him, but hadn't found him by, um, or 2010 that was, hadn't found him by July, uh, January 2011, where he was killed on a street corner in our hometown. Wow. In a completely unrelated incident to me. And that was the whole end of the ordeal. So January 2007 to January 2011 was wow. the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, when you finally met, and, and I apologize for, uh, you met somebody in Wyoming, and I forgot, I apologize, I don't Terry Markham. Terry Markham, okay. Mm-hmm. And... All the way up until this point, you never really even acknowledged or thought, not even, maybe I don't know if the right words acknowledge, but you never really thought that you were a victim. Was there any sort of shame or was there, was it something? Yeah. So yeah. Was there shame or something involved? Did you feel as though like, well, I was a party of this. So um, tell me a little bit about that. When, and because she was the one that kind of she's the one that really brought it to your attention it sounds like if i'm if i'm hearing you correctly like she was like you know listen alexandra you were you were trafficked yeah you were trafficked uh you were manipulated he's narcissistic um you know it, it it sounded like what would sound like challenging was him trying to man- manipulate you in a sick empowering way from what i got mm-hmm. You know, like he was trying to, it, it comes off like he's trying to be like, you're really not going to do this, you know, and, and kind of empower you to say, you got this girl, you know, mm-hmm. what is, you know, it's all manipulating. It's so. the master manipulators. They're like yeah. sociopaths that think they, they just can smell, like smell any sort of weakness and, and they just exploit it. And I mean, it's really, really unfortunate. So he, just, yeah, he had, so I'll say before, up until um, I met Terry. I knew what I had experienced was domestic violence because there was physical violence and it was my boyfriend and that is domestic violence. So that like I, that I put together quite well when the police got involved. Um, they asked me obviously about what we had. They asked me direct questions. Where did he hit you? How often, how did the relationship start all of this? They never asked how we made money, like specifically. They asked if I had a job and I said, yes, I managed a tanning salon, which was true. But I didn't provide information to the police about, you know, helping him steal from people because I was like, I'm not telling the police that like I stole from people. I'm going to get arrested. Like, that's not smart. And I'm not telling them that I was a stripper because we all know cops hate strippers. So like... I'm not, unless they're asking me these direct questions. Well, this is what's going through my head, right? Not necessarily the truth, but I was like, and even when I had first gone up to the police that the next day after um, he had found me, because I was, uh, it was St. Patrick's Day and I drank my weight in green beer. And then when I saw him, I ran, I vomited. And I was like, I'm not going to police like this. Um, So I went the next day. And the lady at the county had to choose a number and like go up and and I'm trying to talk to the the officer at the counter. 
And granted, I sounded crazy. Like I showed up and I wasn't like, hi, this is the situation. I was like, my boyfriend showed up last night and he tried to kill me, but he didn't try to kill me last night, but he's tried to kill me before. And he might try. And she was just like, okay, here's some paper and just like write down what you want to tell me. I didn't realize that that was supposed to be my statement. So I just like wrote down a little Mm -hmm. overview of who he was. Um, And then when she looked up his name in their system, I remember she like eyes go wide and she turns the computer towards me and she was like, is this him? And I'm like, yeah, that's him. And she was like, he's known to us. He's extremely dangerous. You're in danger. Do you know that? And I was like, yes, I do. That's why I'm here. Um, So throughout that whole time, I absolutely willingly maybe not proudly but willingly wore the label of survivor of domestic violence um i was pretty sure there was some sexual assault in there but a lot of it i I really wasn't sure because did i say no when he you know dropped me off with the owner of the strip club and left the room and i had very little choice as to what transpired there no because if i said no to this guy i was going to get beaten up by that guy so it was i I didn't understand I, i didn't understand it to be assault still because it was I had said yes to so many things that I stopped saying no and I didn't understand coercive control and manipulation and all of that um so yeah I carried so much shame and blame for you know I was a child advocate and then I was a meth addict in the sex industry like that is that is not a glow up folks that is the exact opposite of the path that we hope anybody goes down um but we don't and I just, either though it's, we don't raise our hands and choose that lifestyle you know somehow some you know it's just like you, you try a little this and do a little that next thing you know you're deep deep in it yeah and you don't but you don't if you don't understand coercive control and cognitive dissonance and trauma bonding you don't you cannot separate yourself from the choice like there was so that you're talking about master manipulation. There was this one instant. Um, he was mad at me because my skirt, his mom had commented on my short skirt. And then we are going around to house parties as we often did. Right before we go to get out of the car at one, all of a sudden he's like not letting me out of the car. And then my leg hurts and I'm looking down and he's, he sliced my thigh open with a knife. Whoa. And he's like, now you're going to have to wear longer skirts. And I, I remember just being confused, like what just happened? And then he, I don't want to get too graphic. He, he, he from there, we, he got out of the car basically. And then was like, are you coming? So I have to walk into this house party in a short skirt with my leg bleeding. Like he was that brazen. Cause it was that sort of manipulation. Like, I dare you. Are you going to run away? What do you like? He could, he walked me into a party. Everyone saw my leg was bleeding. How easy should it have been for me to be like, this guy Just, is crazy. He just did this. The thought never crossed my mind. The only thing that crossed my mind was how ashamed I was that someone might see that I had done something to deserve that. And I needed to clean it up and make excuses and cover it up for him. So you thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you had a a skirt at a certain length he didn't agree with, you thought that you were the one at fault. And not that you deserved that, but you... Didn't ever even process the fact that this guy just took a knife to my leg and opened me up. The only thing I could process was this is humiliating. 
because everyone knows everyone knew him everyone knew he was violent everyone had warned me not to date him and i had yeah. laughed at them and so this evidence that maybe i was in over my head this like glaring bright red literally evidence that i was in over my head that's what was embarrassing to me yeah. it wasn't it didn't ever occur to me that i didn't earn that not necessarily by because my skirt was too short like i was like no screw you i'll wear, wear whatever skirts yes, i want sure. it was more the i knew he was dangerous when i started dating him i still chose to date him when I, you know, I haven't asked for help at this point, I've only gotten myself in deeper at this point. Like I got myself into this riptide and it's now my fault and my responsibility to, to handle it, to manage it. So now you're out there and you're advocating, you're educating, you're consulting. Uh, who are some of the uh, people that you're uh, like say law enforcement, I'm assuming you're you're out there talking, which I think is so important because I was a police officer for 22 years. Never in my mind have I thought to ask that question. It, it seemed like the diagnosis would be like in your case, domestic violence. Not ever asking the right questions. That's what came to my mind was it sounded like the officers just didn't ask the right questions, or maybe they you yeah. know weren't really trained to think, hey, maybe this girl, you know, being trafficked, you know? Um, yeah. And so besides law enforcement, who else are you out there uh, speaking in front of? Um, well, I just spoke in front of a giant audience at a TEDx event. Uh, yes. So yes. there's that. Yes. That was really cool. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Actually, yes, thank you so much. I have it written right here with a circle around it, and I missed it. Yeah, so yeah, that's like the granddaddy of all talks. That yeah, I know. I, I, I heard about that too. I want to hear about that. Yeah, what that experience is like. So tell us the theme again. Uh, I know what it is, but I want you to tell it. Um, and go. Yeah, tell us about this TEDx. I'm, I'm very excited about this for you. Yeah. Um. So I spoke about consent. So when I had decided, um, I wanted to do a TED talk a long time ago and then this one came up and I was like I'll you know throw my my hat in the ring um and you have to audition like you have to apply and then audition and it's from 200 or something applicants down to 12 um so I knew I wanted to talk about something to do with human trafficking but TED talks are not meant to be like a keynote yeah or like a like a teaching you know seminar sort of yeah. thing it's like the whole idea yeah, it's supposed to be a, like a new idea or a new a shift in a, an idea, a shift in thinking. So I was trying to figure out like human trafficking is this massive topic, right? And if you're not just teaching people the, the, you know, criminological theory or psychological theory behind it, like what are you talking about? Yeah. And so for me, what kept coming up was consent because that was the crux of my story. I believed I gave consent. I believe I, I believed I said yes, because I had said yes to, you know, the first thing or the second thing. And therefore, everything that happened after that was my fault. Mm -hmm. And so when Terry introduced the idea to me um, that maybe you should consider your life through the lens of human trafficking, that was taking everything that had happened and considering it through the lens of consent. Did I actually agree? Or was I coerced? Was I able to say no 
emotionally safely, physically safely at any time. And so for me, that's what I talk about trafficking in, in my TEDx talk. I talk about my story a little bit, and I talk about the importance of all of us understanding the true nature of consent and consent beyond just no means no, because that's also how I, you know, the abuse lasted as long as it did when I was younger and bringing in more conversations about consent um, and ensuring that we're talking to, to like all our youth about consent the same way, because so interestingly, I think, um, you know, I didn't want to turn off boys and men by talking about consent because so often guys are like, oh God, we're about to get blamed for everything again. Like, I don't want to hear this. Yeah. Like they're going to make us, you know, to, out to be assholes and I don't, I don't want to do this. And my point is it's not, that's, that's not fair. It's not fair that through teen years and late teen years, maybe early twenties, we teach boys and men through social media, through rom-coms, through generational language of like, if you ask out the girl you like, and she says, no, just try again, right? Show up outside her window with a boom box, write her poems consistently until you wear her down. And she says, yes. Right. So we're giving this message of like, keep trying. But then at some point, boy becomes a man and it's like, what do you mean you don't understand? No, now you're a predator. And I think that messaging is so unfair, um, not just to boys, but to girls as well who are like, hold on, I've watched these rom-coms. So if I say no and I don't like this guy, I just should let him annoy me into, into falling in love with him. Yeah. So I don't know my own mind or I'm supposed to say no so he can ask seven more times because then he fulfills his you know, hero journey of, of getting me to be his girlfriend or something. So if we start from a young age and help both genders understand how to ask for consent, what consent looks like, that consent is not just no means no, it's also an en only an enthusiastic yes is a yes. Yeah. Teaching body consent to our little ones, I mean, and big ones, but you can start when they're little of like, hey, Come practice, give me a hug and tell me, I'm not going to use any words. You tell me if you think my body wants a hug, right? So with really little is if they come in to give you a hug and you go like this, but don't say anything. And you can say, do you think my body wanted a hug then? No. How could you tell? Well, you move like all of this. That translates really well to kids in their early teens who are getting it on for the first time or, you know, trying to experiment. And one party is not necessarily saying no, but they're like, yeah. Okay. That means do not keep going. That means stop and have a conversation. When we start having these conversations about the nuances of consent, then hopefully we don't end up with people who have, or more people who have stories like mine, where it's like, I thought I consented. I was 13. A 13 year old cannot consent to a 30 year old, yeah. right? That's not a thing. Also, just because I said yes to dancing in the corner here doesn't mean I said yes to you leaving me with the owner of a strip club to pay off your debts. Yeah. That's, that's not the same thing. No. So when we start understanding those nuances of consent, we can bring everyone into the conversation and go, okay, where are we? What do we think of this? And then from there, we can start spreading that message. So there is a universal understanding that sexual consent is a basic human right. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a good perspective. It is. It's, and it's like, it doesn't put off 
anybody. I mean, I think everybody can agree. I mean, guys are just sometimes uncomfortable in the position as well. And then they, they think that like, don't be a pussy, you know, like you said. And uh, yeah, I know it's, I think that those are like important, healthy conversations. um, Yeah. That need to be happen. You know, that need to happen. That's really interesting. I love your, I love your reframing of that whole, I've never even thought of it that way too. No, neither I. I've learned a lot today. I'll tell you. <laughs> and you know what? Sure. Coming from a substance abuse background too, um, you know, it's it's like there is a huge correlation in our center. We're a small program, so we get to know everybody, like 15 people, so at a time. So I mean, there's such a high correlation, in Alexandra, of these um, uh, people in general, but women with a high correlation of trauma with substance abuse. So like the fact, like I mean. It's like not a huge surprise that, you know, I mean, you know, now as adults, we can all look like that is crazy. A 30 year old with a 13, but in the time, like you thought it was somewhat consensual. You thought it was, you know, normal at the time. And then coming out of that and realizing, oh my gosh. And it's like no surprise that like you ended up like abusing drugs and helping coping with that. And like that, that, that was a, a, a coping skill. And then that, and then that, that boosted you to a different lifestyle as well. And it's just, I mean, you throw somebody manipulative like that and abusive, with like substance abuse and addiction. And um, I mean, it's like, talk about ultimate like power control. It's, um, I, but it's amazing what you're doing now. Hmm, thank are you. you doing, are you doing uh, coaching as well? Do you do coaching for, you know, women that were victims? No, okay. I'm no, just, not at this not time. Just Most... Not just women. I, I keep seeing women. Yeah. All for anybody that, um, okay. You answered the question there. Yep. I, I will say it's in this line of work, I find I have to both be careful to not always refer to victims of, tra- of trafficking as female um, yeah, because yeah. we know there are male victims of trafficking. Yeah. However, we also can't talk about it like it's a 50 50 split because it's not it is not there's 50% you know female and 50% male trafficking victims it's like a 955 yeah. now statistics are skewed cuz we know males are less likely to report um but still we know it's not so we can't just say like oh it's it's equally you know equally likely to be victimized at this point it's not mm-hmm. realistically we know who works in the sex industry as a whole, not even speaking about just those being trafficked. Right, right, right. Recognize if you look at those working in North America in the sex industry, it is mostly women and girls. Mm -hmm. It is mostly people who come from Black, Indigenous, or uh, person of color background. It is low income, lower education, people who have things very vulnerable. Vulnerable populations. So there's always this argument, and like I live in BC, which is a very pro-sex work province. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to talk about trafficking here because everyone's just like, oh, no, no, no. But most commercial sex is fine. And I'm like, no. So it's because legal. it's legal. There's Is there legal it's, prostitution? No, so we follow our federal law in Canada follows the Nordic model. So buyers and traffickers are criminalized, but people like victims or people who are selling sex themselves um are not criminalized they're offered resources um if they want to stay in the industry they can if they want to you know exit they're offered resources to exit there's a huge debate and i like unless we have another three hours we won't get into the whole debate of all the details of it 
But I will say, like, we do have to recognize that it is gendered. We have to recognize that it's not 100% gendered. It is not only women and girls, mm -hmm. but it is gendered. So when we look at trying to equip our country or countries with the resources to heal those cracks that people fall through that end up in vulnerable situations and they become exploited or trafficked, um, we do have to skew that towards understanding that it is more heavily women and girls who are finding themselves in those situations. And if you ever want a sex industry that is based in, in, you know, equality and, and not exploitation and is safe and all of that, if that could ever exist, and I'm not saying it could, but I'm saying if it ever could exist, you first have to repair all of those inequalities that lead to people being, exploited and put in vulnerable situations working in a dangerous industry. Yeah. One of the things we do to uh, wrap up uh, the show and thank you so much for coming on. I, I really can talk to you for another three hours, but I, I know you're, uh, you know, we're getting to the time, but um, so one of the things we do is we end the show with a question and what that question is, what do you want your legacy to be? You're doing so many wonderful things. Um, you have one hell of a journey so far. And I'm so happy that, um, you know, to hear that you're doing so well. And so what we do is we ask again, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want, you know, your name, Alexandra Ford, to be remembered as? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, take your time. Honestly, it's... Um, it's a very powerful question. Uh, that's why we end it with this. And it, it probably goes back to the, again, the beginning of the show when we were talking about bios. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think I'll say that I want to be remembered as someone who is not just powerful, but empowered others. I want to be remembered as someone who fought for peace even if that's just peace within myself. Um, and I want to be remembered as a sparkly tequila fairy that, that just, you know, can find love and joy and laughter. It's like a nickname or something people know about me. It's just this, like, I, you know, I, you're going to find sparkles on my person almost every single day. You know, I, love rainbows and unicorns and, and like just all of that things. I never want to, I never want to lose that joy that is inherent to the point of our lives that we were our most innocent. I, and I want to fight for that. I absolutely love that. One of the, uh, and I don't remember, I think it might've been uh, Gabor Mate. He says, go back to when you were a child and, and just be childlike with your laughter. And so when I hear things like, you know, pink clouds and rainbows and unicorns, that's the first thing that comes to mind is like, bring back that inner child within you. And, you know, I'm glad that you uh, came on to our show and so happy. Uh, oh, before I let you go, what is the best way people can get in touch with you for your services? And everything that you do for uh, advocating and educating and, of course, consulting. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, 
I am still working on social media. So I will say Instagram at the laughing survivor. Um, from there, you can find my website and all of that stuff. And then for people in the States or really anywhere, um, Uprising, which is my nonprofit, uh, the website uprisingyo.org, so uprisingwyo.org, um, has, you know, the work we're doing and all of that, but it also has resources for parents and kids over 12 if they want to start having conversations or you want to start being like, hold on, this feels like a lot. What do, how do I talk to my kid about trafficking without scaring the bejesus out of it? It's got some great resources, some funny YouTube videos about consent, about um, sextortion, about what to do if you did send the picture you were definitely told not to send, you know, all of those things to just start some of those conversations. So as a parent, you can feel a little bit more equipped to handle what is obviously a scary subject. So either uprisingyo.org or um, the laughing survivor. Cool. And what's your Instagram handle? Uh, literally the laughing survivor. There you go. Awesome. Perfect. That's it. So there you have it. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for coming on. I really appreciate it. John, you have any Wonderful to... guest. Appreciate it. Hey, one question, Alexandra. I'm going to yeah. a wedding in uh, Jackson Hole this summer. I've never been to that part of the country. What, it's just so beautiful. What, any suggestions? Oh, goodness. Um, well, so even in the time I lived in Wyoming, I didn't make it to Jackson Hole, though I have a friend who was in the sheriff's department there until recently. He just moved and... He said, you know, it's beautiful every time, all times of year. So just be prepared to spend time outside. Hopefully you're there when there's good weather. We're looking um, when, at what time of year did you say you were going to be there? June, June? Which, is, which is like 80% humidity in Florida. It's a beautiful time to just leave and go anywhere north. So yeah. So there's no humidity in Wyoming. Okay. It's like dry and beautiful. And if you go in the shade, it's actually like totally different temperature versus like where there's humidity, you're in the shade and you're like, this did nothing. I'm still sweating. So Wyoming is beautiful at that time of year. And if you're going to travel around a bit, uh, Sheridan is where Uprising is based. Oh, so no if kidding. you're going to find yourself there, I can set you up with a meeting with Terry to no doubt. say okay. hi. Awesome. Well, we will connect in the future. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank you for being so thank open you and, and you're helping a lot of people. No, oh, thank you guys. Appreciate I really appreciate getting to come on and chat with both of you. Yeah, right. we learned a lot. I, I definitely did. And sure. appreciate that. So thank you. All right, everyone. Uh, this is ending our show with uh, today with Alexander Ford. Thank you again. And uh, we'd love to hear about the book. So when that book comes out, let me know, hit me up on the gram and, um, you know, I, I'll get that, read it and we'll get you back Absolutely. on hopefully one day. Can't wait. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. So there you have it. That wraps up today's powerful episode on Recovery Chatter with our inspiring guest, Alexandra Ford. We hope her story has enlightened and empowered you. Remember, knowledge is power and awareness is the key to prevention. If you love today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, iTunes, or Spotify. Your support helps us keep this conversation going and reach more people with these life-changing stories. And if you're feeling generous, we'd be over the moon if you could leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening. Stay vigilant and keep tuning into Recovery Chatter, where every chat brings you closer to the world of healing and hope.